All right. Beaming from Pacific Junction Hotel to Earth. Yo, welcome my summer layer. I'm your host, Sam Yunan, and I'm ecstatic to have an individual with a unique and fascinating job. So please introduce yourself and what it is that you do for a day job. My name is Elizabeth Semmelhack. I am the creative director and the senior curator of the Badashi Museum. And I would say every single day is different. Um, it's remarkable given that I'm focused and I have now been focused on footwear for almost 20 years that it seems like a narrow focus, but people have worn shoes throughout time and around the world. And so every single day I come across new facts, I come across new ideas. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I still have questions to ask after 20 years. And so for people that don't know or not familiar, can you give us a little breakdown too of the Badashu Museum? Yep. So the Badashu Museum opened its doors here in Toronto 25 years ago almost. And 2020 will be our 25th anniversary. And it Happy started, birthday. Yeah, thank you. Um, it started as Mrs. Bada's private collection. Mm -hmm. So Mrs. Bada began collecting shoes, she liked to say because she married a shoe man. <laughs> um, she married Mr. Bada and... She's a young woman, and she wanted to be a part of the world, and so she insisted on traveling with him everywhere he went because the Bata Company had factories all around the world. And so she made a very astute observation, which was people's feet are the same mm -hmm. no matter where you go, but what they have put on them historically is very, very different. And so what can be learned about culture by thinking first about the footwear? And so she started collecting, and then the collecting bug bit, and now we have 14,000 wow. pairs of shoes and other attendant objects. And so it is a remarkable collection, and we are open to the public, and we do t changing exhibitions mm -hmm. and lots of research. And so it is also the only shoe museum in North America. So Way to go. Yeah. Are you guys going to do something big for the 25th anniversary? Yes, we are. Uh, the 25th anniversary will be a series of things. Um, the actual birthday isn't until May 6th, but... Oh, I was a little early with the happy birthday. Yeah, no, no, it's totally fine. Uh, I, I did a book on the collection that'll be coming out on the 5th of May. Um, we're opening an exhibition on the 18th century, which might sound like it's a dusty topic, mm -hmm. but in fact, there are a lot of things that get established in the 18th century about ideas about gender, ideas about exploitation, ideas about empire that play out at one at the footwear level, but also find themselves expressed in footwear today. So the exhibition is actually divided between uh, 300 years ago and today. Yeah, it makes sense because, I mean, some of those themes overlap with sneakers, though. They do. Mm -hmm. uh, and actually, there'll be some sneakers in the exhibition. Okay. And then the other exhibition that we're doing next year is called Exhibit A, and it's on uh, crime, forensics, and fashion. Ooh. And sneakers will be in there, too. Okay. Is the sneakers related to that, to like running away and like succeeding with the crime? or? Well, the word sneaker itself yeah. comes from the 19th century, and it was about sneaking. Mm -hmm. And so criminals were... were uh, as soon as the price point had dropped, because sneakers actually came out as an item of status because rubber was so expensive. But as the 19th century progressed, sneaker prices drop. And because you can pad around noiselessly, there Sneak. were. There were, yeah. And so I found this really amazing quote. It was this crazy interview uh, with the Chicago Tribune, I believe it was, in the 1880s. And it's like a how-to for sandbaggers. Sandbaggers were criminals that kept... Um, pillowcases or bags full of uh, buckshot. 
Okay. And so it was like, so you're a sandbagger. How do you become a sandbagger? And he said, well, you need a, a bag, you mm-hmm. need buckshot, and you need sneakers so that you can sneak up behind people oh. and whack them upside the head. Yeah. And and so then I found an ad for a shoe company in Boston a few years later, and it said, sneakers, you don't have to be a sneak to wear them. And I was like, that sounds just like Run DMC's, I wear my sneakers, but I'm not a sneak from literally 100 years later. Right. And so this thread of implied criminality and sneakers is a very long one, and mm-hmm. we'll be exploring that in that exhibition. Yeah, and so... Related to that, um, we'll get into your book in a second, but like related to that then, because sneaker culture, do you view it then as like outsider culture and then they're slowly kind of sneaking into the mainstream culture now (laughs) as it kind of gets bigger? Or do you see it as like a group of like outcasts almost because there is an individuality that kind of runs through it too? Yeah, you know, I, I grapple with that quite a bit. And so, one, the history of sneakers, and there, I think you could argue there's been different kinds of sneaker cultures throughout the long history of the sneaker. But I think when people say sneaker culture, the best way I think that it can be defined is that it is a group of individuals who are knowledgeable and that that knowledge is more than just a passing, I know that Michael Jordan signed with Nike kind of level detail, Mm -hmm. but to the point where they almost become a kind of cognoscenti and so they are able to talk to each other um, because they know these nuanced details and histories. And so it is about a kind of elite set with a very, very deep knowledge. Yeah, from a museum perspective, from what you're saying just now, it's like sneakers are our hieroglyphics, right? Because they're kind of like they're symbols. Well, it, it, it was interesting because when I did the sneaker exhibition out of the box in 2013, I, I believe in exhibitions that give a lot of information. Mm-hmm. So I write a lot of text and that had a lot of um, interactives. And for the first time ever in the history of me doing an exhibition, I had people come in and read every label, spend hours in the gallery looking at every object. And I was like, this is the most perfect set of museum goers I've ever interacted <laughs> with yeah. because they're already historians. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, yeah. there is a love of knowledge. Yeah, in, in your book, actually, the Out of the Box for the, mm-hmm. for the exhibition, you have a really cool line where you said, the urban interest in status sneakers uh, coincided with increasingly larger cultural trend rampant through North American society that suggested individual expression could be achieved through brand identification, mm-hmm. right? And this is kind of what you're talking about, right? We're like, not just a historian, but people want to know how they kind of feed into or connect to that larger historical trend. Well, I agree. And so, you know, I talk about this and out of the box as well. One of the things that men have been schooled, in fact, going back to 18th century, uh, was that men are by nature rational and that that rationality that innate rationality should be proven through a rejection of fashion fashion was posited as expressly female and related to emotion Mm -hmm. and so this kind of drives me insane um and (laughs) and so women have historically been required 
to show up at workplaces or at parties like oftentimes I will say oh remember when you went to the prom and all the guys had a similar tuxedo but every woman's dress or every girl's dress had to be different women have to do that in the workplace and and so it comes with economic obligations that I think are quite burdensome but at the same time they can express a little bit of their private self by mm. how they get dressed every morning so men on the opposite side had to be restricted to the suit and so individuality was maybe limited to tie choice. Yeah. Um, maybe some funky maybe, socks. Maybe some, some, yeah, and that's a little more recent yeah. ideas of funky socks. And so they have not been included in this idea that what you put on your body can be a part of self-expression. But on the other hand, too, they haven't been obligated. Mm -hmm. So sneakers, I feel, have cracked the door open to both things. They are allowing men to choose through brand alliance or through model um, the ability or giving them the option of saying something personal about themselves but it's also as sneakers streetwear become increasingly accepted for men to wear i think you will find that men become obligated to buy more as yeah well. back in the day too like shoes used to be like a women's thing right like amanda marcos and people like That's that actually how i got into sneakers because i've been my work as a historian is um, started out on the history of the high heel. Mm -hmm. It was in the early 2000s. And people started, even the word shoe itself, like you were just saying, mm -hmm. almost had a female connotation. And so when I would go to parties and people would say, what do you do? And I'd say, oh, I work in a shoe museum. And they'd say, oh, that must be for the ladies. Yeah. And then I was like, are you joking? Mm -hmm. We don't have a culture in which men go barefoot and women get to wear <laughs> shoes. Right. Yeah. And have none of you ever heard of a sneakerhead? Mm -hmm. And so I actually began to do work on sneakers so that I could help to sort of talk about the fact that, no, it's not a gendered activity. Mm -hmm. Footwear has, uh, can be used socially, and it can be used socially by both genders, right? But with sneakers, though, isn't there a specific masculinity to it? Correct. I that kind of underpins it? That's right. And I think that that actually is the secret for how, why men can consume them. Mm -hmm. Because there's no threat to masculinity if you consume a hyper-masculine object. Right. But then it's interesting because in your book now, we'll finally get to your book now, right? Sneakers and Culture. Uh, you talk about collaborations in your new book. You interview and you profile a number of female designers. I do. Right. And I did that on purpose. And so that's what I'm getting at. Because I was yeah. as a magic trick then, like you're trying to subvert, I guess, the culture a little bit. <laughs> kind of. Well, well, I mean, out of the box really was focusing on different constructions of masculinity and sneakers from the origin of the sneaker all the way up to today. And so one of the things I did get when the, the sneaker exhibition began to travel, it opened at the Brooklyn Museum and it went across the U.S. Just at the exact time that women were becoming increasingly vocal or, or media was picking up on women being um, sort of saying, hey, how come I can't get anything in my size? Mm -hmm. And that there were these systemic ways of keeping women out of sneaker culture. I think not having shoes in your size is a pretty big one. Mm -hmm. And so... Or the lazy, like, they just do it like pink color. Yeah, the shrink it and pink it. And, and so women were rejecting that. They wanted to have the same access that anybody else had to sneakers that they wanted. And so all of this conversation was sort of starting to come really uh, being brought to a wider culture around 2015. And so I had purposely not included women uh, a huge discussion of women in that exhibition and in fact I'm writing now a book on women and sneakers the history of women and sneakers but um, 
I think that there was this watershed moment where companies were like, oh, right, maybe we can include women a little bit more. And so I purposely wanted to highlight the work that has been done by some mm -hmm. uh, women who've collaborated on sneakers and include them in collab. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, because I mean, like, example, what you're talking about, like, even though it's aimed a little bit more at guys, like when Farrah Foster in, uh, was Charlie's Angels? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, she had the night Cortez, right? And yeah. she was like all skateboarding and stuff. And it's a pretty blonde girl and she's skateboarding. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, oh, that's really... I know it is aimed at guys, but again, it's just kind of already introducing the fact Al that although women can be comfortable doing these things and that kind of thing too. Well, I would say that that's actually what makes the 70s such a pivotal moment is that Phil Bowerman brings jogging to the U.S. Jogging is not a gendered activity. Women mm -hmm. are in very much in the 1970s. Women were in urged to do athletics not to be the best athlete but to keep slim mm -hmm. and so women join gyms you know by the 80s you got step aerobics the freestyle comes out which is one of the biggest sneakers of all time and so women were being allowed to wear sneakers to go jogging um not to go marathon running mm -hmm. yet really i mean there's there's a few women who were able to do that but women were expected to do some kind of athleticism but it wasn't to be athletic yeah it was to meet certain body ideals set by culture mm -hmm. and so women have have always have worn sneakers but they have carried a different um message to them and i think what complicates all of this is when a female athlete like serena williams reaches you cannot get more yeah. successful than that. The Michael Jordan of tennis, basically. The Michael Jordan of tennis. But how come everyone's not running out to buy and wear her shoes? Like, mm -hmm. where are the male customers for the Serena Williams shoes? There, we still culturally have some discomfort with ideas of feminine desirability and athleticism. We have ideas that feminine desirability and fit mm -hmm. and fitness go hand in hand. Yeah, I mean, but not athleticism because it's a different model, I guess, for guys. Like even going back to like this is a weird tangent, but going back to like <laughs> Nazi Germany, right? Where like the, the I talk about that exact thing, right? Yeah. And it has always been like a standard, and even now into the NBA of how guys should look or whatever. Like it's been a consistent trend, right? A consistent line throughout history of like this is what a guy should look like. Correct, and so and so male fitness, also fitness and male beauty, right? go together but so does winning mm -hmm. so does being the best and so the ways that 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 can be negotiated is through by playing sport winning mm -hmm. um you don't win an aerobics class yeah right <laughs> right so, yeah. so female fitness is not set up on those models mm -hmm. and whereas male fitness often is is that it's not just fitness for fitness sake it's for fitness to be the best Right. And so that feeds into our ideas of masculine competency and, you know, male ideals. But it also feeds into sneaker culture because, like, in the East, like, it was hip-hop that was... Hip-hop and basketball, basically, were Correct. the two things... Yeah, they become intimately connected, right? Right, yeah. and this is what you're talking about because hip-hop, too, is very much, like, uh, it's a lot of braggadocious, and, right? And, and so is breaking. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a different form of athleticism. Requires a low-top basketball shoe, you know, the... The Puma, yeah. uh, Clyde is a perfect example. And it's competitive. Mm -hmm. There are very few places where women are competitive in that or are encouraged to be competitive. Yeah. In that way. And in the West, it was skateboarding. Correct. That was the big influence That's exactly again. Right. Right. And again, just the ability to do certain tricks and somebody else couldn't do the mm -hmm. tricks and things like that. Correct. Mm hmm. 
And like to pick up on that thread, like you just mentioned, like the Puma Clydes, there's a number of sneakers and brands that are kind of missing from the new book, the, the collaboration book, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> Was that, uh, is that on purpose or is just, does that take time like for somebody like the Stan Smiths have been around since the 70s as well? Like, so does but, nostalgia but, take up? A... But I do talk about the Stan Smith in the. Yeah, in, no, in the, the Stan article. Smiths are there, yeah. but I'm asking like, does, does it take a while for the nostalgia to kind of kick in where like people want to start collaborating and like doing cool stuff with like Ewing's or Under Armour or something? the newer yeah so, like, so does it take a while to kind of get going it does and the other thing to any project like a book or an exhibition is itself an exercise in restriction mm-hmm. who who will answer your phone calls who will help you get an image right and so it no book can be definitive right? correct and, and this so, is a giant topic too so and it is a giant topic right and so i just i did did the best I could. So <laughs> I, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I tried to have a wide range of mm-hmm. brands, of people who did collaborate. Um, just, it's really sort of a smorgasbord, if you will, a buffet mm-hmm. um, uh, that people can, can look at and consume. But 100%, there's, there's a lot that I was not able to get my hands on. Mm-hmm. In the book, you interview a major sneakerhead, uh, Babito Garcia, all right? Oh. And uh, in that interview with him, you ask him about collaborations, and you ask, do they open up this idea of dreaming? Yeah. So I want to ask you that question. Uh, when you look at all the collaborations and when you were seeing them and kind of researching them, mm-hmm. did they open up this idea of dreaming? What I find so interesting about collaborations, and, and I do talk about it in the book, so this is probably going to be a long-winded answer, but go for it. I'm I'm interested, one, in why right now we're interested in collaboration specifically. Why we're interested in two known entities coming together, working together, and being, and being equally acknowledged for that work. One, I think that's really interesting. Fashion is often extremely prescient. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, you know, I've, I've said this in other interviews that I'm wondering if we're slightly moving away from hyper, uh, a focus on individualism to thinking more about working collectively, which would be a big shift mm-hmm. culturally. And then in talking with the people who worked on collaborations, there's such a driven love for what they're bringing to the table, especially the stories that they can engage with through sneakers. And I'm like, how many other garments do we put on our bodies that we infuse with narrative? It's a mm. remarkable mm-hmm. thing. And so then I'm always one of these people who's like stands back and was like, okay, so what does this mean societally? And so, you know, I had this image in my mind like a hundred years ago when people had their houses, their Victorian mansions or Edwardian mansions, whatever. And obviously it's the upper class story I'm telling. Um, And you'd walk in and there'd be paintings and carpets and all these things from their travels and their interests sort of in their interiors. And now our interiors are shrinking and shrinking and shrinking and I think that we are having to put a lot of those details actually wear them on our bodies mm-hmm. and so we are using the juxtaposition of brands um, clever ways of um, pairing objects to get across a sense to the outside world of our own complexities and I think that collaborations add to that ability to tell complex stories even of our own selves and so I don't know if that fully answers your question. Yeah, no, but, <laughs> but I want to pick up on that one thread that you mentioned, which was storytelling. Because yeah. like Tinker Hatfield, was when he started doing the Jordan line, that was the first time I ever noticed that there was like a story. And he was mm-hmm. weaving a narrative 
uh, through them, and that's one of the reasons one of the reasons why the Jordan brand is so successful because you can. Oh, I agree. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And when you were assembling this collection of uh, collabs for the book, was that one of the hallmarks that you were looking for? Was that kind of storytelling, or did you start to notice that that shift? Because we went from like Chuck Taylors to like Air Jordans, right? Like in terms of like storytelling. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I wanted to be open to all the different reasons why people would come together and work together on a sneaker. And you know, I tried to also make clear that there are. Like, I think of the Stan Smith as not as a collaboration. I think of the Stan Smith as a signature shoe, right? Mm -hmm. Stan Smith didn't even really have much to say about the model, right? It's a a previous tennis player's model. Everybody else who's come after it, Pharrell and people like that who have have done collaborations with the Stan Smith. Exactly. And and, and that's the other thing, too, that I say somewhere, uh, is that when people come to work on sneakers, particularly heritage models, those are not blank canvases, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, they're, they're already infused with this incredible history that has to also be considered adds adds to the narrative right that's being addressed so if i remember your question <laughs> you're asking about storytelling yeah and and that i think it's just a it's just an amazing place to see how so much storytelling can actually take place on a three-dimensional object mm-hmm. meant to be put onto your foot mm-hmm and there's little hidden Easter eggs. And there's, I mean, there's so many things, you know, in my interview with Chris Hill at mm-hmm. Reebok, I'm working with um, Kirby at Pier Moss, is like all of the details and thought that they're going into every single little bit of mm-hmm. the sneakers, I think is really remarkable. But it's also a weird balance too, because like you said, like collab is like, you're hoping that we eventually move away from like individualism. Mm-hmm. Uh, partly what you're saying is like selfishness and that kind of narcissism. Well, I mean, just, just the cult of single genius. You're I'm right. not saying that this is an, a complete erasure of Correct. that. But I'm wondering if this is a step towards an evolution. Ideas, an evolution towards thinking more collectively. Yeah. Right? So, but then it's kind of a weird tension then, isn't it? Because like you're using this like, mass-produced product like an Air Force One or something like that. And like Nike is a billion-dollar company. It's not some small indie (laughs) company, right? Yeah. And you're like, I'm going to wear these Jordans, and then this is going to give me some individuality or signify or tell my story, I guess, partly, right? Oh, for the the actual consumer. Yeah, for the consumer, for the individual, right? So it's like a weird tension because you're using a mass product. Not all, And I know some collabs are obviously much more limited in their runs and stuff. Yeah. But you are still using a mass product to do individualism it's kind of a and weird tension isn't it work. yeah it is absolutely 100 percent. Mm-hmm. and i do think too that we you know we touched upon it earlier but that we through brand alliance right it's like well i only wear puma well, i only wear nike or mm-hmm. i just i just wear the converse all-star all of those choices even conjure up in my mind who that person might be mm-hmm. you know and and so i think this is why ideas of authenticity become really important and then we know as well something like with the Jordan brand is it's not just that you're wearing Jordans. Oh, you're wearing the 12s. Mm-hmm. Oh, 17s. Mm-hmm. Interesting. You know, and, and that each one of those also is situated in time. And then maybe you remember when it was first retroed. And I mean, it, it's, it's, a, it's a massive brand. Mm-hmm. But there are many different points along that trajectory that also bring in ideas of nostalgia, history, individual player, specific games that are all touched upon and used mm-hmm. uh, to construct those statements of self. And just kind of what I was saying with collaborate, like it, the rarity too, like the, 
the Eminem Jordans, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Right? The thing was 50 was only made or something? something like that, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right? So it's like they're super rare. Correct. But again, it feeds into both like Eminem, so whatever your feelings about Eminem are. Yeah. And then it feads into Jordan brand and they're Jordan 4s, right? Yes, so yeah. uh, the threes and fours are my favorites, right? Yeah. So like <laughs> those are like the holy grail then, yeah. right? So yeah, I see what you're saying. <laughs> And, then, and but, then it also allows for those who know, like mm-hmm. if you walked into the room wearing them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, then, know, right? Yeah. It's a statement. Mm-hmm. That, that's that, a lot. That, that's an expensive statement, though. Yeah, it's a, well, it's an expensive statement. It's a, it's a, a statement about your own understanding mm-hmm. of that rarity, and you're communicating a whole bunch to the people in the know. Yeah. It's like that classic thing of like 90% of communication is like body language or yeah. not spoken or whatever, right. right? Like when you walk in with a pair of Jordans or something, uh, a Converse or whatever, mm-hmm. Allen Iverson answer shoes, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. People already know where you are, who you are, that's and what right. you're about. Yeah, and so that's an insane amount of work for a pair of shoes to do, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Like, yeah. that's why I'm, I have to keep do, doing work every day because <laughs> yeah you are constantly unpacking it right Correct. and that's why I said like hieroglyphics because it is there's a number of symbols kind of at work exactly and you got to Rosetta Stone and figure out how they all kind of work and translate and, and yet particularly among other cognoscenti mm-hmm. they're going to be reading all those layers instantly I mean it's instantaneous right? yeah it's yeah it's not like they sit back and like five minutes later they, oh I see what you did there mm-hmm. right it's like got it yeah amazing yeah it's a trailer almost it is, yeah. Because you know, it's like... Do you want to get to know me better? Mm-hmm. Right. Right? And you know already kind of, like, where they're coming from and, like, if there's a cool person or not cool person, right? So, like, I usually I'm... When I find somebody wearing Jordans, I'm like, all right, this person got a certain standard or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I can roll with them. I know where they are, right? I was once in a, a line to go through security at the um, airport in... Where was I? I think I was in Newark. And... Like, for whatever reason, there were, like, seven guys who did not know each other who all had on really interesting sneakers. And the conversation that just exploded while we were all waiting in line <laughs> was amazing. Yeah. Like, I felt like five minutes later, they're all good friends, you mm-hmm. know? <laughs> yeah, because it's, yes, that shorthand said uh, icebreaker. And so I want to pick up on that thread, though, of the collabs, though, because that's a unique position, right? Um, like, Stanley just passed away in uh, November uh, mm-hmm. 2018, right? And when he was creating all the Marvel characters, there's a lot of like uh, debate at the time of like how much he actually made with the Fantastic Four, how much he did with mm-hmm. Incredible Hulk, and that's sometimes too with collabs. Sometimes it's hard to know where the shoe ends and the designer begins and those kind of things, right? Yeah. Like, um, okay. like as you said, like you're hoping that this is the next evolution, right? Well, Collab- I'm hoping that collect- collective work, collective and appreciation work. of of um, everyone who participates yeah. in the creation of something. I'd love to see us culturally move to that. So could the collab process teach us better how to communicate and how to work together? Because it's like there's everybody's been in school where like you do a group project and there's yeah. one person who does no work. Yeah, and I and I think probably there are many collabs that never make it to actual production because of inability to communicate or visions can't be realized. Somebody might be a, a real thinker in 2D, can't understand how that gets translated into a three-dimensional model of a sneaker. Um, obviously we only have what is successful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I think that process probably, I, I would be amazed that for every collab that makes it, that there aren't, you know, 10 in the ditch somewhere. That, that just, would be an interesting follow-up book though, work. wouldn't yeah, it? Right. Like to see the, the ones. Yeah. 
Because, I mean, that's the JC thing, right? He only raps about the businesses that succeed. He never right. raps about, like, he had a 40-40 club in Vegas that closed. It didn't do well at all. And never bring it up. Right. <laughs> right? So from the, the way that he's singing and rapping is like, I'm successful. I'm like, well, that's not completely true. Right. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. And I think, too, that I probably there are, I'm sure, a great deal of collabs where people feel like they're equals at the table. I'm sure there's ones where... Um, it doesn't pan out that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And is it the collabs now, like the, the kind of flow of how they're starting to use different materials and different mm-hmm. kind of things, and it gets funkier and funkier right. uh, as you kind of go along. Is it kind of getting harder now? Uh, like, are we almost, quote unquote, running out of material or something like that? Or like, is it kind no. of endless or like, because you know what <laughs> I mean? Because now it's like you're trying to write a song in like 2019. There's a lot of beats and music and notes and stuff have already been like used. because you're just looking at, I mean, not you, but mm-hmm. people are, I think, you can feel that way if you just look at self-referential things. So well, the reason why I end the book with Bunyamin Edin at Le Benjamin's in um, Istanbul is when he and I were talking, he, he was talking about wanting to use um, Turkey's really rich history in, of textile work and that he was sort of trying to incorporate some of those traditional designs into the sneakers that he was making. And he was talking about some work he'd done with um, some Tuareg people and he was he made this statement which was oh there are so many stories that still can be told and so if we can just look beyond ourselves north america if we can be open to even other forms of storytelling um the the world is getting smaller but i think the way it gets smaller is by listening and including more voices and so i think collaboration is a really interesting way to bring wide-ranging groups of people into the conversation Mm -hmm. and so i i agree that maybe um you know a fruit loops collab or whatever Mm -hmm. uh you know maybe we don't need to now have you know check mix collab and uh, (laughs) you know that that maybe that can run itself dry Mm -hmm. but i i think that if we really are interested in hearing more voices the world's full of them Mm-hmm. And so collaboration could be an interesting way to be more inclusive. Yeah, I brought up Tinker Hatfield. He obviously kind of tends to dominate the conversation sometimes right. with these things. He's the Michael Jordan of design, yeah. right? <laughs> so is then is there any I other... your measure. Yeah, that's the uh, very simple man, <laughs> yeah. complex times, as I was telling you in the email. Uh, so, but then like, uh, is there then like a couple of designers or people that you would recommend or people kind of like you keep an eye on or like see what they're going to do next? I mean... Yes, <laughs> obviously, I'm always interested in what um, Tinker Hatfield's doing. I'm, as I include in the book, like I think Chris Hill's doing really interesting work at Reebok. I'm interested in what Nick Galloway does, um, like the collaborators he brings to the table for um, Adidas, and I'm also interested too, like in the sh- uh, shoe surgeon and what he's doing with mm-hmm. with cu- customization. Um, it's interesting too thinking about mosh um these people who have done these very hyper customization things uh whether or not they might collab and make and make uh, more widely available uh sneakers i think that could be interesting to to think about and obviously there are many many unsung heroes mm-hmm. sort of hidden away in companies as we wrap up then i mentioned like things are getting funkier and the designs are getting funkier and stuff like this because you do it chronological, I do, yeah. right, throughout the book. So is this an evolution of taste as well? 
I think it's an. Uh, is that the best an, way to put it, or how would you put it? I think that. Yeah, I don't know if I would say it was an evolution of taste. I would say it's an evolution of shifting cultural interests. Mm -hmm. um, I think that innovation is really sneakers have been at the forefront of innovation um, throughout their entire history. And now that we are thinking about sustainability, you know, it's everything from like the parlay for the oceans, Adidas working with ocean plastics, but it's Steve Nash did a recycled shoe there too. Exactly. And so thinking about w what can, what will our needs for sustainability, how will that drive design? So, the um, Flyknit, the Nike Flyknit's a good example. The Probably for the Oceans collab's a, an interesting example. 3D printing and what that might bring to the table. But also once, you know, shoes do have a very basic job, which is to fit the foot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and, you know, they don't actually even have mobility mm -hmm. in their mandate. High heels certainly don't meet that mandate. Right. Um, and so I'm actually excited to see what, footwear could possibly look like when we can use innovative ideas like 3d printing and so you're you know sort of talking about the shifts in architecture and of sneakers and that people seem to be pushing the limits but you know i'm going to sound like a broken record but i think those limits can be pushed even further mm -hmm. as new technologies are invented and i'm sort of excited and that's kind of going back to the athlete and like the you know what i mean like nobody can run like a five-minute mile, and right. rough, you know what I mean? And so as the well, shoes and everything kind of develop, everyone kind of got to be a little bit more aggressive and kind of tries to get out there a little bit more. And I do think, too, that the majority of sneakers today are separated from athletic purpose, right? Mm -hmm. it, it's fashion now. For fashion, correct. And so what would the sneaker unleashed mm -hmm. <laughs> look like? Um, if when, when would it cease to be a sneaker, you know, if it gets 3D printed in some crazy shape? Yeah. Uh, just to wrap up then, so we kind of touched upon the uh, the New York City basketball hip-hop community. We touched upon uh, the West Coast, the uh, skateboarding. How are you finding the Toronto sneaker community and, like, Toronto in general? Like, you're not originally from here, right? So, I am not, no. Yeah. In the time you've been here, then, have you seen the sneaker community kind of grow? And I have, yeah. The sneaker community has definitely grown. And I think, actually, um, Toronto's – I'm really excited to be in this city because what one world politics is mm -hmm. i think making canada really stand out i think that there are a lot of reasons why toronto is getting a little more play internationally and you know it's even sort of how i felt when i started here the museum was five years old it was at its nascency i was able to be a part of it when it was just starting not to say that toronto's just starting but i think that toronto is is gearing up to explode um, on the world stage, grow uh, itself, its infrastructure is changing. I think it's becoming an increasingly important place for people to want to come to, to move to, to live and work here. And so it's really, it's great to be situated in a place that's looking to the future, not simply mining what it had been in the past. All right. We can end it there. Where can people find uh, information on you or the Battershoe Museum, especially with the 25th anniversary coming up? So our web page is great. So it's www.battershoemuseum.ca. And that's where we'll have all of our information. The 25th anniversary, as I mentioned, doesn't really start until May. And so we'll be slowly revealing all of the things that we're going to be doing. 
I'll be doing 25 unboxing videos. Wow. God help me. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, with a with a wide range of people, from celebrities to mm -hmm. the average person who walks through the door, um, sort of hope, hoping to delight people with uh, the range of our collection. And yep, it's going to be an exciting year in 2020. So hopefully, people will just keep checking it, checking us out and mm -hmm. actually coming in and walking through the door too. All right, thank you, Elizabeth. Okay, thanks. Yo, that was fresh. I'm so grateful when somebody is generous with their time and with their ideas. Once again, I'm fascinated by this connection. Elizabeth mentioned it in our discussion of the criminal elements with sneakers, like to sneak around. In 1954, an American psychiatrist published a book called Seduction of the Innocent that linked comic books with juvenile delinquency. There, there's no such link. His research was entirely bogus, but it did ignite the predictable moral panic and the standard pearl clutching. The other two cultures Elizabeth and I discussed, skateboarding in the West and hip-hop in the East, their origins have criminal and joyful law-breaking, which were factors in their growth. I mean, another culture I dig is magic, which implies the con man, the hustler, but not in the good, <laughs> not in the good sense of the word. We, we go through these cycles of criminality to acceptance to influence the mainstream, which we've seen with Elizabeth's sneaker work. Elizabeth's books are excellent, and I highly recommend both of them. First is Out of the Box, The Rise of Sneaker Culture. This is a social sneaker history and how we got here, how the canvas was established. Her latest book, Sneakers and Culture Collab, is what people who get together do with the canvas. They're both tea-worthy. Brew a strong pot and chill with them. If you want more info on sneakers, I got two streaming options for you. You don't even have to wear pants. This is the kind of service that we provide. The first episode of the Nat Geo show, The World According to Jeff Goldblum, it's on uh, Disney Plus now. It's his uh, quirky exploration of the sneaker world. I guess <laughs> I guess he just found out it's a real world, it's a real thing. Um, it's a bit light in places, but there are some interesting moments. Uh, that's kind of like a little fun thing. Over on Netflix, look for Abstract, The Art of Design. Both seasons are incredible. You should just watch both seasons. So good. However, for our discussion, season one has an entire episode profiling Tinker Hatfield, and it is stunning. I rewatched it again in preparation for this conversation with Elizabeth. Please do check that out. It'll just make your life better. Lastly, one more thing to check out. Photography Assistance was by Henry Vanderspeck, a.k.a. Culture Snap Photography. You have him to thank for the pretty pictures and for applying the Foxy filter and making me look so good. I honestly don't know how he does it. It's some sort of weird magic. Go to culturesnap.ca to check out his outstanding work and be sure to tell your single friends. His stuff is amazing. He's also got some exhibits coming up every now and then. Um, and there's some really cool, he puts his photography on pillows. There's like uh, Kim's Convenience. There's Honest Ed's. There's a few really distinct Toronto icon locations uh, that are fantastic on when you see them on a pillow. So do look out for that. You can get the pillow from Henry. You can brew some tea and then watch The Art of Abstract or read Elizabeth's books. That's a good day. If you want to talk about sneakers or comics or magic and criminals, you can hit me up at my pal Sammy for the Twitter, the Facebook, and the Instagram. My pal Sammy for all three. Sneakers, yo!